Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Cat goes for a walk by herself along the river the other night and uh, came back and was excitedly telling me the story of all of the things that, that she saw and witnessed, the beautiful trees, the lovely climate. And then she said this, and I had to write it down to get the quote exactly right. Oh, jeez. Then I saw that cat that I gave ham to that one time. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> we, I actually have a video. Did you ever post that? I didn't. Okay, no. yeah. I got a video of uh, Kat and I walking home. Um, it was later in the evening and we had leftover pizza. We came back from a, a restaurant and had some leftovers. And all along the way, Kat had to stop to, to feed uh, the cat's pizza. We should mention we also had our friends' leftovers, which was why there was ham. Right. And she was giving the ham to the cats. Right. They liked the ham. The funny thing is, as soon as you fed that cat ham, somebody's house alarm went off. Like you violated some kind of feline uh, pork congestion <laughs> ordinance. What's funny is I never bring cat treats because you, know, you just don't see cats here a no, lot. No. Um, and that day I happened to bring cat treats with me and I saw three cats. I mean, wow, right? <laughs> <laughs> that story kind of landed a lot flatter than I thought it was going to. <laughs> Maybe the cats were all just hiding and uh, they saw you and that one cat goes, hey, that's that's the one that gave me the ham that time. <laughs> and so that they all came out together. Right. Maybe that's it. Maybe. And then the next night I saw a dog and he was awfully cute. And so I gave him treats and then he followed us. And so I cried on the street. Yeah, he followed us for about three blocks. That was that was rugged. <sighs> that's one of the things. And that's why we're so grateful for uh, you and the patrons, the members of the Order of Freaks on Patreon. We, we donate 10% of any proceeds that, uh, that they give us to support the show to a, a charity. They elected to give this quarter's 10% funding to a local dog shelter that's being built uh, by an organization called Fawn. 
that'll go a long way to address the stray dog problem. We're so grateful. Thank you guys so much. In the twilight hours of late December 1980, the quiet woodlands of Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, England, became the center of one of the most documented and debated UFO encounters in history. Oh, was this uh, the uh, the show that you were watching the other day, learning about this event? It was one of the many shows I was watching. Okay, because yeah. so often when I come in and I comment on the fact that you're watching some sort of UFO show, yeah. you're like, it's research. And it, <laughs> you know, it very rarely is. But I, I love that in this case it was. Well, they called it Britain's Roswell <laughs> and it captured uh, the attention of UFO enthusiasts, skeptics, and the general public uh, for, for decades. RAF Woodbridge historically serves as a keystone for both the British and the U.S. military operations in Suffolk, England. RAF Royal Air Force? Yes. Okay. Now, the people that worked there or were posted at this time were accustomed to the nightly sounds of aircraft engines and uh, military activity. The base's residents were no strangers to unusual occurrences, yet nothing could have prepared them for what happened on December 26th, the day after Christmas in 1980. The evening began ordinarily enough. Security was patrolling around the base's perimeter, making sure everything was secure. Yet as midnight approached, the calm quickly dissipated. Guards began reporting mysterious luminous phenomena, lights that appeared to gently descend into the adjoining forest. Now, uh, these weren't regular landing lights on an aircraft that they were familiar with. Uh, It was not the flash of a meteor or anything like that. These were different. These were described as otherworldly. But given the proximity to the base and the unexplained nature of these lights, a potential aircraft crash was the primary concern. Okay. That maybe an unannounced aircraft that was in trouble was trying to make an emergency landing and didn't quite quite get there. So the base command quickly authorized an investigation. A select team was dispatched to investigate the dense, dark forest and find out what the heck was going on. Upon arriving at the reported location, the team that consisted of a guy named John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, and Edward Kabansag, John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, and Edward Kabansag entered uh, the scene, which was, as they described, straight out of a, a science fiction narrative. There, in the middle of a bunch of tall pines and underbrush, hovered a radiant metallic craft. Now, it was unlike any aircraft that they were familiar with. This object lacked any kind of conventional aircraft features like wings or propellers or engines. Instead, it was just a triangular structure that emitted a strange, unearthly glow just hovering over the forest floor. Triangular? Like from below or above, it would have appeared triangular? Or triangular like pyramid-y shape? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I interpreted it in my mind. Mm -hmm. I just envisioned it as triangular if you were to look down upon it or from a slight angle. And they did get up close to it. The most bizarre moment came when um, Pennington approached the craft. The object's surface was covered with peculiar symbols, patterns that seemed neither entirely mechanical or wholly organic. 
Peniston later likened the markings to some kind of hieroglyphics. Okay. Uh, the intricacies of the symbol seemed to tell a story or perhaps convey a message, but they, they couldn't discern what that message was, of course. Peniston, driven by a combination of his military duty and I would imagine just curiosity, approached the craft and as he reached out, his hand touched the surface and he said it was oddly warm given the fact that it was a chilly winter night. The smoothness of the craft, he said, felt both metallic and organic. Interesting. As if it was some sort of a combination of technology and biology. That's how I think stingrays feel. And they're sort of triangular. They are. Maybe it was a unidentified forest stingray, a UFS. <laughs> Probably it was, was one of those. So as his fingers made contact with the craft, a rush of sensations flooded him. Almost instantly, as if like a dam burst within his mind, a flood of ones and zeros flashed before his inner eye. It was as if the very act of touching the craft had initiated a direct data transfer to his consciousness. The sequence of binary code seemed to imprint itself onto his brain. So there they stood, and the only sound they could hear was the low hum of this craft and the occasional crackle of their two-way radios. They just stood there transfixed. They didn't know what, what had happened, and Penniston was just, you know, in a state of shock. They were in the presence of the unexplainable. The questions surrounding the craft's origin, its purpose, and the beings responsible for its creation would become questions that would haunt them for years to come. Again, this was 1980. But as the dust of the initial incident settled, Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston came forward with an additional layer to the story, a facet that would turn a bewildering UFO encounter into a profound cosmic mystery because it wasn't merely the vision of the craft that had haunted Peniston. It was the unexplained sequence of binary digits that had surged into his consciousness right. when he touched that unknown entity. It wasn't a whisper. It wasn't a voice or even an image. It was raw data, a raw data transfer, the language of computers and machines, yet it felt eerily organic, he says, in its presentation. I wonder what he meant by that. That sounds pretty fascinating. How did how did this evening end? Did the thing scootle away or did it did they get sleepy? What happened? How did this end? Well, it didn't for several days. It would uh, it would leave and it would come back. A oh, it was of a days long event. It was several days, yes. I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't understand that that was the case. And so one day it left and then just didn't come back. Right. Okay. Did they ever see it leave? Did it fly? Did it? I have so many questions. Yes, they saw it uh, ascend and disappear. Okay. Did it disappear in a, like a with a a like a whoof? Did it make a whoof sound? Yeah, it did. It made a whoof sound. That's standard UFO protocol. Whenever they're leaving an area, they're required to make a whoof sound. But that encounter in the forest isn't the big part of the story. It's this binary code that haunted Peniston for years. He, he talked about feeling almost puppeteered by an intangible force during the incident when, when the uh, binary code was being downloaded, I guess, essentially. Like an unseen hand was guiding his actions. The sensation was never stronger when he felt an overpowering need 
to document the binary sequence, and, and this was years after it happened. The world around him seemed to just disappear. Priorities shifted. All that mattered was the imperative to transcribe those ones and zeros that continued to flow through his mind years after the event. So he wrote them down. Every stroke of his pen felt like a step toward deciphering a cosmic puzzle. The notebook initially was just a simple tool for military notes and personal reflections. Soon was filled with this enigmatic code, pages and pages and pages, each line just a series of ones and zeros. And he didn't have to like try to remember it. It just lived in there. Yes. And he okay. said it was almost like somebody took control of his hand. Okay. When he was like automatic writing, I mm. guess. To the casual observer, these might appear to be just random sequences. But Penniston was convinced that embedded in this binary code was a structured, purposeful message. And it wasn't until experts were consulted that the magnitude of his experience truly began to come to light. Translating binary into discernible language is a meticulous process, and the results that they got were astounding. The code seemed to translate into a coherent and deliberate message, not just some form of gibberish. The idea that this craft might have transmitted an, in, an intelligent message, possibly a beacon or a plea, certainly adds a layer to this already amazing incident. Was the craft attempting to communicate? Was Penniston's experience a unique intersection of human consciousness with extraterrestrial technology? Or was it all a psychological manifestation from all of the intense stress and wonder of the encounter? Here is what the binary code translated to. All the time I turn around, brother gather around, always looking at me up and down, looking at my, uh, how that's what you, I assumed. How did you know? Yeah, I assumed it was Fergie. Fergie is otherworldly. <laughs> the code was translated to say this, exploration of humanity, 666 space 8100. And then below are map coordinates. Beneath that, continuous for planetary advan, third coordinate continue. These are words that are not complete. Mm -hmm. And then a code at the bottom, which is UQS-CBPR-LOG. Now, here's a brief overview of what some people, some experts, some uh, cryptologists have thought it could mean. Number one, exploration of humanity. This part of the message might suggest an investigation, an investigative purpose behind the visitation. Sure. The, the exploration could either imply passive observation or a more active interaction with humans for research purposes. Right. Probing. 666-8100. The numbers in the sequence are Enigmatic 666, historically and culturally significant in its biblical associations with uh, the devil and negative things or even demonic connotations. But in this case, it's important to approach these numbers without a cultural bias. They're right. meaning within the context, we really don't know. The coordinates point to a specific location, Suffolk, England, where what? the sighting took place. The inclusion of these coordinates might suggest a specific interest or significance in this particular location. Mm. Continuous for planetary advan, A-D 
V-A-N. This fragment suggests a long-term or ongoing mission or action uh, for the benefit at VAN, might stand for advancement, uh, of the planet, presumably Earth. It could indicate a benevolent intent or perhaps a plan to improve or evolve something related to our world. I mean, I think there's a lot of interpretation that could happen there because the the advancement could be theirs. Oh, maybe yeah. that's, you know, could be. Maybe they want to eat our gold. Who knows? Or maybe it was just part of like a uh, shopping list on Amazon and they were trying to say advance to my shopping list. They needed new shoes. Mm. Third coordinate continue. This is an incomplete statement. It may hint at a series of locations or events of which the Rendlesham site is only one. It could also indicate the message was not fully received. Right. The bottom line, the alphanumeric sequence is the most mystifying part of the message. It could represent some form of identif- identification, uh, code, a logging mechanism. Its exact meaning, we don't know. Right. As we have discussed before, when confronted as humans with the unknown, our mind instinctively seeks patterns and connections and explanations. And the decoding of the binary sequence, it's no exception. Driving enthusiasts and skeptics alike into all kinds of uh, speculation about what it is or what it isn't. The potential source of the message, theories ranging from intergalactic to the inner workings of the human psyche. Uh, The most immediate and tantalizing theory suggests that this message comes from an intelligent life beyond our planet. Were creatures from outside our solar system attempting to convey a greeting, a warning, uh, or merely marking a point of astronomical or archaeological interest to them on Earth. An even more radical theory suggests that the craft, and consequently the message, may not have originated from outer space, but rather from another time or another dimension. Mm. The idea that these visitors could be humanity's descendants. It's captivating, but it's also a little bit unsettling. No, it makes perfect sense because binary is a language that we know how to interpret. Mm. That's so much more logical than this alien race using something that we understand to communicate. It's exactly right. Carl Sagan uh, talked about two universal languages, chemistry and mathematics. And initially, when SETI started, you know, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, they were beaming with their uh, radio telescopes a signal, and it was just a series of prime numbers because that's universal, and an intelligent race would be able to say, that's just not natural phenomena. So if the message from the future idea is the case, could those coordinates represent a pivotal moment or place in our future history? It brings up questions of predestination and the nature of time itself. Why would our future selves reach back to this moment? Are they extending a hand of guidance or maybe it's a desperate plea to get your shit together, people? (laughs) But of course, this skeptical lens can't be ignored. No matter how much you'd like to. But I'm going to anyway. (laughs) No, no. Given the time period, the early 1980s, mm. the Cold War backdrop and rapid advancement in advancements in secret technology. Some people say that the entire Rendlesham incident might be the result of human ingenuity, that the craft could have been an experimental vehicle and the binary code, a method of encrypted communication. 
and Peniston inadvertently intercepted it. And this theory, while well, it's nowhere near as exciting as ex- extraterrestrial contact to me, um, would signify a profound leap in technology and psychology, and those implications could be just as staggering. The fascination of the Rendlesham Forest incident doesn't lie just in the event itself, but in the many possibilities that it presents, whether it's a message from the stars, a ripple from the future, or a testament of human innovation. It, uh, it does remind us of our eternal quest to comprehend, to understand what is this all about. Mm. Or it could have been ergot. <laughs> now, before I close, I actually have a recording of the sound of the aircraft. They actually did have some recording of the sound of it when they initially encountered it in mm-hmm. the Rendlesham Forest. Okay. Would you like to hear it? Yes, very much. Thank you. So nearly half a century later, the Rendlesham Forest incident continues to fascinate us while some see it as extraterrestrial or even interdimensional contact. Skeptics argue for more terrestrial explanations. Mm. So time travelers, interdimensional beings, extraterrestrials, or is it merely a confluence of human error and imagination? The true nature of the Rendlesham Forest incident remains for now unexplained and waiting to be unraveled. My source information, the BBC, the Suffolk Constabulatory, How Stuff Works, and NBC News. You know, I'd heard of that, but I hadn't heard like the full stories. That was really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. 
And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. Now, from the Box of Oddities' newest podcast, From Beneath the Hollywood Sign, this is That Thing in the Middle. Here's Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. The most iconic landmark in Hollywood is certainly the Hollywood Sign, second to the Capitol Records building, where the likes of Frank Sinatra and the Beatles recorded. But a lesser-known landmark that stands just a half block north of Hollywood Boulevard is the Knickerbocker Hotel. Opened in 1929, this hotel was originally a showplace for A-list celebrities like Betty Davis, Mae West, and Betty Grable, and later a place for people like Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio, as well as Elvis Presley, to hide from the press. The glint of glamour was a facade for the dark and dramatic side of broken dreams and empty promises. And, of course, a dog that was trained to operate the elevator. And you know, Nan, what really marked the beginning of the Knickerbocker Hotel's more, let's say, dramatic history involved the magician Harry Houdini. He was known for his death-defying tricks as an escape artist, but it wasn't a stunt gone wrong that caused his premature death. It was appendicitis. Wow. So after performing to a packed house in Detroit, he fell ill and was rushed to the hospital, and he died a week later, appropriately enough, on Halloween night of 1926. How about hmm. that? Yeah. Well, Houdini had always told his wife, Bess, that if there was an afterlife, he was going to reach her beyond it. So Bess, she held this annual seance every Halloween night to try to conjure up Houdini's spirit. Okay. Well, on the 10th anniversary of his death, Bess held the seance on the rooftop of the Knickerbocker Hotel. So only this time, it had turned into this big media circus. I mean, there were reporters and photographers. It was, it was a big thing. But like the nine previous years, Harry Houdini was a no-show. All right, we'll keep waiting. <laughs> that Thing in the Middle has been brought to you by the Box of Oddities' newest podcast, From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Now, back to Cat and JG. We're so proud of the job that these guys have done with From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. It had been available for two days and it hit number one on the Apple Podcasts film history chart. Well done, you guys. You can find the link in our show notes. Hey, Nicholas sent us an email. He starts it out with, hey, spoopy butts. <laughs> I was listening to the most recent episode, or certainly is a recent episode, about uh, Mark David Chapman and the murder of John Lennon at the Dakota. My dad 
has been a huge Beatles fan since the British invasion and shared the, uh, his appreciation with me as I grew up. One day, I asked why the Beatles stopped making music, and my dad explained the dynamics of the band and how George Harrison and John Lennon had both died. I asked how they died, and Dad stated that Lennon had been shot. I asked by who and for what reason. He explained the individual wanted to become famous as the person that killed John Lennon, and so because... He wanted to be famous for killing John Lennon. My dad has made it a point to never say his name. I love that. And to try to not remember it. Fuck that guy. This little anecdote doesn't add much to your story about the Dakota, but thought I'd share this story since Kat made the comment of, quote, must not be too famous if we don't know if he's still alive. Thanks for all of the work you put into these podcasts as they help me get through my work day. Mm, thank you. Hauntingly yours. Nicholas. Great story, Nicholas. We got a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And gosh, might I say, we appreciate your reviews. Yes. So much. It helps us continue to grow the podcast. How does it help the podcast grow? I don't know, but I know that it does. I speculate that it has to do with uh, it moving us higher on the charts and that way more people can find us. And Okay. Anyway. Hi, it says, hi, Kat and JG. Sorry if some of the spelling is incorrect. So hi, I'm Bobby and I'm 10. I use my mom's account to listen to your podcast (laughs) and I listened for the first time on the phone. I'm sending this on today. I dropped it and I can barely send this message. This is the last message I can send. So I just wanted to tell you that I love your podcast and you make my days better. Bobby, you make my day better. I'm thrilled. That's unbelievable. Although it sounds like it's a plea for escape. This is the last (laughs) communication I will make. (laughs) I love it. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank all of you who have taken the time to leave reviews. Yeah. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
Did you know that Kat and Jethro learned how to produce this podcast by watching a YouTube video? Really? You could tell? This is The Box of Oddities. What do the USS Fenachite, the Celt, the SS Sachem, the Sightseer, and the Circle Line V all have in common? Um, they have never been in my grandfather's garage. That's exactly correct. Good night, everybody. <laughs> I don't know. They're all the same ship. Oh, really? And her history is as interesting as her many names. Thanks, Heather, by the way, for suggesting this literally months ago. Sorry, it took me so long. Originally launched in 1902, this ghost ship has a fascinating history filled with little tidbits that I felt made it appropriate for spooky season because she's called a ghost ship, right? I, I love ghost ship stories. It turns out she's not super ghosty at all. Anyway. It's got the word ghost in it, so it, does. it qualifies. Thank you. Originally designed as a luxurious yacht for a railroad tycoon, this steam-powered vessel was called the Celt. Back in 1901, the famous Manhattan businessman John Rogers Maxwell ordered a steam yacht. He was quite a wealthy figure in the late 19th century and had a stunning mansion on the Long Island coast, and he held important positions like chairman of the executive committee of the Central Railroad of mm. New Jersey mm. and the president of the Atlas Portland Cement Company, that kind of thing. The Celt was intended to be a luxurious steam yacht and the flagship of Maxwell's racing fleet. It was built by a well-known shipbuilder, Poussey and Jones Company, which had been in operation since 1848 and had created more than 500 vessels over the years, including racing sailboats and cargo ships and war sloops and luxury yachts. Now, the Celt was quite impressive. It measured 186 feet overall. It was 24 feet wide. It was made of steel done by Pencoid Ironworks, which was later absorbed by Carnegie Steel. So, you know, it was like it was quality shit. Okay. It was also designed by a renowned yacht designer named Henry C. Wintringham, which... Henry C. Winteringham sounds like a luxury yes. yacht designer yes. name, does it not? Of the, of the Northport Winter Psalms. <laughs> what was his name? Winteringham. <clears throat> of the Northport Winteringhams. <laughs> <laughs> it was originally made with uh, two deck houses carved out of mahogany and two mast constructions from Oregon pine. There were nine furnished staterooms, each beautifully furnished in richly carved mahogany. It boasted modern plumbing and electric power throughout. Wow. And this was 1901. Yes. That's pretty advanced technology. It's super advanced technology. Shortly after the U.S. entered into the Great War, the ship was acquired by the U.S. Navy. It was placed in service as the USS Sachem. It was armed with machine guns and depth charges and became a secret weapon. And I'm sure that was because of all the mahogany. Yeah, one doesn't expect mahogany in a death machine. After the sinking of the Lusitania, the New York Times interviewed Thomas Edison about military preparedness. 
And he was suggesting that military preparedness should be organized more like industry with research labs and civilian assistance. And this caught the attention of Josephus Daniels, the Secretary of the Navy, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was Assistant Secretary for the Navy at the time. Daniels asked Edison to lead an advisory board to generate and evaluate ideas for the Navy. And Edison accepted this. He became the president of the Naval Consulting Board. So he and his crew, including his wife and his son, moved on to the USS Sachem for 10 weeks. They conducted tests at sea. Wow. I've never heard this. And I've read everything I can get my hands on about Edison. So after the war, the Navy returned the vessel to its civilian owner, who was named Manton B. Metcalf. From the North Port, Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> he later sold the sachem to Roland Leslie Taylor. Now, Roland Taylor was a banker who organized an industrial company, and this was now the 1920s. So following the passage of the 18th Amendment in the United States, which made the manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol illegal, Metcalf saw an opportunity and used his new yacht as a rum runner. <laughs> so regardless of his, let's call it ingenuity, the depression hit Metcalf pretty hard and he sold the ship to Jacob Martin in 1932. Jacob Martin replaced the coal boiler with a diesel engine and converted it into a fishing boat. Now, can you imagine the life of this ship so far, like it's got all the mahogany and all the brass mm. and all the fixings of this luxury yacht. And you're, it, you're landing a marlin on its deck. <laughs> what Martin did was open the boat up to leisure fishermen. So uh. if you were willing to pay $2, you could fish off of the sachem. And he did pretty well because this boat could handle about 250 guests each tour. Oh, wow. It briefly got to scootle about, pulling up tuna or whatever, before being called back into duty. So Pearl Harbor was attacked and the ship got new armaments and some fancy sonar equipment and a new name. It guarded the U.S. coast against U-boats as the USS Fenekite. The ship acted as a patrol. It escorted other ships out to sea, and it worked as a training vessel. It was part of the Fleet Sonar School Squadron. In 1944, the U.S. Fenekite patrolled around Key West Harbor and then patrolled in the zone between Long Island Sound down until the Keys, and then the Carolinas and Cuba until the end of the war. Following the war, once again, the ship was returned to civilian use and to the name the Sachem. Eventually, it was purchased by a cruise line in New York City, and the Sachem was renamed the Sightseer. It served as a recreational vessel. So the Circle Line were in the 1950s were reorganizing their fleet names. They were a big deal when it came to recreational boating, but it was becoming less and less popular. So they were reorganizing and they renamed the Sachem slash the Sightseer to the Circle Line V. 
It was around this time that Circle Line, again, as cruise lining was declining, got rid of their other ships, but they kept the Circle Line V as it was a crowd favorite. And if I recall, that decline in the cruising industry at that period was due to the surging popularity of air travel. That makes a lot of sense. And it was the 1950s. They had a lot of slinkies and TV dinners to eat and stuff. Silly putty to play with, yeah. Eventually, the ship became outdated, though, in my opinion, classic design never goes out of style. The boat was sold off for scrap. It was stripped of all of its useful equipment, though I'm sure it didn't have any of like the fun military stuff left anyway. (laughs) But it's brass bits and it's timber and all that business. And the Hudson River Maritime Academy decided that the ship still had value and it wanted to care for the ship and some volunteers had organized to oversee the preservation of the vessel. Hmm. In 1986, a guy named Robert Miller, he was just a private boat owner, he purchased the ship. It took him 10 days to drag it out of the muddy sludge of the Hudson with the help of bulldozers, and he refurbished it. So they didn't do that good of a job conserving it. No, I mean, they it. did their best. Oh, okay. Yeah. Some pretty sloppy caretaking. Well, like I said, a lot of the ship's bits had been mm. taken away, and so maybe some of those were, you know, integral to its buoyancy. Yeah. They took all the bolts out of the hull. <laughs> so this incredible ship had earned an American campaign medal and two victory medals from both world wars, which this is something that I learned this week. Ships are awarded ribbons and medals just like sailors are. Mm. And when a ship earns a ribbon or a medal, all the sailors who are serving on board at that time are awarded the same medal. That's great. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I love that. So after starting her life as a high-end, state-of-the-art luxury yacht and serving as a floating laboratory for Thomas Edison and serving in two world wars, in 1986, the Circle Line V was spotted after it had been rehabbed by Robert Miller by a representative of Madonna who (laughs) asked to use it in her Papa Don't Preach video. Ah, that's why you were singing that all day. I couldn't figure that out. (laughs) Miller was tickled and refused compensation for its use in the music video, which I think is so cute. (laughs) But not long after, in 1987, the ship was navigated down the Mississippi River and anchored on a tributary of the Ohio River, where it remains today. It's a shell of its former self, and the ship is now a favorite destination for kayakers. It's often called the ghost ship due to its spooky abandoned appearance. And it might seem more like this massive historic beast has actually been ghosted, Mm, left to rot. A ghosted ship. Yeah, still bearing the faded name Circle Line V on its hull, Hmm. or five, depending on how you want to... Sure. Say it, I guess, yeah. whatever. But before her last trek, on July 4th, 1986, President Ronald Reagan symbolically reignited the torch of the Statue of Liberty. It was a grand ceremony in New York City. It was complete with fireworks and live music, and it was a rededication kind of thing. I have no recollection of this. I don't think I've ever heard of this. I don't know why it needs to be rededicated, but anyway. Sounds like something the Worthingtons from Newport would do. 
So Robert Miller, also known as Butch, Butch decided that this was a great opportunity. He took that opportunity to embark on a memorable final cruise with his ship. He filled her with friends and partygoers. They were, of course, all very interested in this historic ship, charmed by its mahogany, what was <laughs> left of it, and right. its engine room and all that business. And they joined a fleet of private boats gathering in Upper New York Bay. Afterward, Butch took the ship on a trip from New York to Cincinnati. And instead of the usual route, he chose a different path, starting from the Hudson River, navigating through the Erie Canal and the Great Lakes, passing through Chicago, and finally making his way down to the Mississippi River, to the Ohio River. So he went into the Erie Lake region. He took this steamer near Cleveland or through like the Cleveland. Stop. It was a Cleveland Stop. <laughs> steamer. This route, also known as the Great Loop, provided an adventurous and scenic journey for the crew and for the Sachem's last hurrah. This was literally like this man, Butch, we'll call him, taking his boat on a, on a last trip before taking it to the vet to be put down. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, his boat went across the Rainbow Bridge. It really did. But he wanted to give it a send-off appropriate mm. for its history. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I mean, I don't know much about ship disposal. Its last days are being spent just kind of hanging out in a shallow part of the Ohio River. But it did have a nice trip before... Yeah, sure. Before all that. Okay. One good final day. Got to eat all its favorite foods. Yeah. Anyway, that is the story of the USS Sachem slash the USS Fenikite slash the Sightseer Circle Line 5 Celts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Who is a ghost ship, but not in a spooky way, but in kind of a sweet and historic fun way. I got my information from USSSachem.org, which is incredible. And there was so much information that I was just fascinated by. But I mean, like stuff like, okay, so her fourth owner... He got the parts to put on this boat from mm -hmm. this guy. Mm -hmm. And this guy's parents owned, you know, Miami or something. It was just like, <laughs> like all these uh, details that wow. were just so intricate. And I don't know, it has its own life. Also, Atlas Obscura and MonmouthTimeline.org. Well, I loved that story and uh, the, the history of the ship. It's over 120 years old and you can still kind of kayak and hang out with it yeah don't get on it though no don't do that not safe again check out the newest box of oddities family podcast it's uh called from beneath the hollywood sign if you like interesting and bizarre hollywood stories from the golden age from beneath the hollywood sign with steve cubine and nan mcnamara both incredible and with such a wealth of knowledge it's so much fun the link, once again, will be in the description of this episode. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, 
That is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.